Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to episode 259 of the Motorcycle Men podcast. And I've got another great interview for you for your listening pleasure. Hey, the Motorcycle Men is brought to you by Scorpion Helmets, dedicated to offering high-quality, innovative motorcycle helmets and technical apparel at an incredible value. So to learn more, go to scorpionusa.com. And, of course, our friends over at Shinko Tire, regardless of the type of bike you ride, when it's time for tires for your bike, Thinko Shinko. That's right. Go to Shinko Tire USA and you make sure you tell them that the motorcycle men sent you. Hey, tired of your butt being sore on those long rides? Why put up with uncomfortable seats when you can get yourself a wild ass seat cushion? That's right. Your back will thank you and you'll enjoy mile after mile of cruising comfort no matter what type of motorcycle you ride. So get on over to wild-ass.com and order today. Make sure you tell them that the motorcycle men sent you. Tobacco motorwear, folks, that's right. It's time to talk about that. If you don't wear tobacco motorwear jeans or riding apparel, you are doing it wrong. Tobacco motorwear makes jackets, vests, and riding shirts. And you've heard me say before, I love my California riding shirt and my tobacco riding jeans. I wear them on every ride. I just won't ride without them. Now, not only that, every time I wear them, somebody is going to comment or ask me about them. Also, get out there, try the new Roper gloves, breathable soft leather, and the most comfortable gloves you ever wear. And for added protection, check out the Wasteland Vest. Plenty of pockets and armor and a great addition to wear with your California riding shirt or under your leather jacket on those slightly chilly days. No need to sacrifice comfort for style. Get on out there and check out TobaccoMotorWear.com. That's TobaccoMotorWear.com. And our listeners will get 10% off your order when you use that coupon code MOTOMEN. And the Motorcycle Men is supporting David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. If you would like to help out and be a part of something that actually makes a difference, donate today to David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. Go to davidsdreamandbelieve.org to donate. Links will be in the show notes. And the Gold Star Ride Foundation, helping the families of fallen soldiers and making a difference in the lives of those left behind. If you would like to be a part of a great cause and get some great heartfelt miles in, go to goldstarride.org and learn how you can participate in the next Gold Star Ride. All right, now, one of my favorite things to do is to listen to audiobooks from motorcycle travelers who are venturing out to various parts of the world on their motorcycles, whether they are traversing Africa, Southeast Asia, South America, or even here in the good old USA. It doesn't matter because their stories are extremely entertaining to me, and I find it's inspiring to hear many of these stories. My guest tonight took an opportunity to travel around the U.S. and South, basically on a whim, and now that is her lifestyle. Joining me today in the V-Twin Cafe is author and motorcycle traveler Tiffany Burkett. Joining me today all the way from lovely Las Vegas, right? Yep, Las Vegas right now. Las Vegas, Nevada, for at least the next hour. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tiffany Burkett. Maybe make it a week here. We'll see. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Author and motorcycle rider, Tiffany Burkett. Tiffany, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you could make it. This is great. We've been trying to nail you down, not literally, but trying to nail you down to get on the podcast for quite a while because you don't seem to stay in one place very long, do you? Yeah, it's kind of like I'm pretty all over the place these days uh after the whole well after i did the whole 48 or 49 states and mexico and all of that um i came back to the states to save up money and spent about two years doing that and it was supposed to be this year that i took off to finish going around the world so i had gotten rid of everything and then COVID happened and now i'm kind of just full-time vagabonding it and just touring around uh, the states i get it really no on any given day. It's well, like, for those people who don't or who aren't into the audiobook thing or who don't know who you are, why don't you tell us a little bit about your motorcycle self and what you do? Okay. Well, so I don't know, should I start at the beginning there? <laughs> well, let's skip the part between uh, you know, diapers and your first beer. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That part's not that interesting anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I really don't think I was an interesting person before motorcycles. <laughs> We never are. None of us are. 
<laughs> so, I basically what most interesting about thing about me is after I started racing, did that for maybe uh, seven years or so, maybe eight years. Uh, I got kind of tired of going out to the track every single weekend and spending every single penny I had and spending every minute of vacation time on track days, which was great, but all-consuming, completely all-consuming. So mm -hmm. then I started touring around, decided I wanted to go cross-country on my motorcycle, um, and that kind of snowballed out of control. I, ah, <laughs> sorry, I'm so awkward right now. That's okay. This is my first time, so give me a second to figure <laughs> this out. Um, so basically what happened was I was doing one of my last years of racing, and I my job ended up getting – the company got bought out, and they were shutting down my office. And um, so I was going to be losing my job that year. So I'm like, okay, well, I just bought an FZ07, and I'm like, this is a perfect opportunity to ride cross-country because I've always wanted to do that. Like, yeah. Got a motorcycle. I think that's like what everyone wants to do when they get a motorcycle, right? Like, yeah, it's like, uh -huh. well, I'm gonna go off into the open road, like kind of that kind of wild hogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please, maybe. <laughs> no. <laughs> no cheesy <laughs> vision of what riding a motorcycle is. And um, so I just bought an FZ07 because I wanted to do more like touring around, and it just seemed like a really fun bike. So when my company shut down, I was like, this is perfect opportunity to go cross country and like finally do that for the first time. So I like spent the last few months while my company finished shutting down and built up the bike, like put saddlebags on it and whole nine yards until it kind of was like an adventure bike and then just took off. And by the time I spent about a month on the road going from LA to the Florida keys and back. And at that point I was so addicted to traveling that it was just like, one of the I just wanted to keep going like I still had savings left and I'm like I, I can't go get another job right now when I have this momentum yeah and I so understand I, completely yeah because yeah, like it's so hard to take that first step into the trip so like once you've taken it it's just like okay I should keep going now because it's going to be really hard to take that step again <laughs> yeah now before now before the FZ what did you have did you own anything before the FZ um so actually I started riding on a Ninja 250 about I was 21 years old and I had a tax return in my pocket and I had no idea what to do with it and I saw like a guy ride by me on a motorcycle and I'm like oh I should try that so I picked <laughs> it's up a logical thing right yeah like, <laughs> right? so I had like 1500 bucks so I picked it up to beat up salvaged old well it was actually a 2005 Ninja 250 so it wasn't technically that old but they hadn't redesigned it since the 80s so it looked pretty old to me <laughs> um, Rode that for about six months, and then I got a newer 250, so I could be cool and have, like, sport bike life. Um, then rode that for a while, and then started... I Actually, I went out to do a my first ever group ride up at this place. It's called GMR out of L.A. It's, like, a pretty popular um, motorcycle road. We call it Glendora Mountain Raceway. But uh, it was my first time up there, and I was with a whole bunch of people I didn't know who were way better riders than I was, because I'd only been, I probably had like maybe a thousand miles under my belt at this point. And um, I ended up eating shit into a, in a corner, almost went off the cliff, and it was just like this super terrible, terrible moment where I was like, okay, I need to go to a racetrack. Like, this is too dangerous to keep going around these canyons like this. Um so then I started doing the racetrack thing. First it was just track days, and then two years later I was racing. And then um, I bought an SV650 for the street and rode that in between races to keep myself sharp. Mm -hmm. turns out that just commuting on the bike made such a big difference to my racing. Wow. Um, I had the SV650 for, I don't know, it must have been like six years or something, and it was the most unreliable piece of shit that I've ever owned in my life. <laughs> That's yeah, that always builds your confidence up when your bike can't be trusted. <laughs> oh, it was just like that bike hated me. Like the the rear brake didn't work from the day I bought it, but like the I went through two, three voltage regulators. Like it left me stranded at the side of the freeway like three times. Every time I dropped it, at thing everything broke and it was like unrideable. Oh, it was the worst. I hated that bike. We were not friends. Wow. Also, what were you what were you racing on though? Oh, I was racing the Ninja two fifty. I so Oh I really? My, and yeah, I went full, 
full track on that, which ended up being really awesome because there's a huge grid of people on Ninja 250s out at like Chakwala and Willow Springs and a lot of, and I'd go up to Northern California and race with them. And it's just like little bike racing. It's super cheap. Like you don't have to buy tires every single weekend and you're just like banging elbows and it, it was a lot of fun. It was like a good, like nobody took it too seriously because it was just silly. You're on a 30 horsepower bike trying to fucking race motorcycles like you're cool. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So now listen, so you got these two books out. You've got your first one, which is the Chronicles of a Motorcycle Gypsy. And then you've got South of the Border. So why don't you yeah. tell us a little bit about those two bu- uh, books? Okay. So when I started doing the cross-country stuff, um, I was maybe a few weeks in, and I was like, when when I first left, everyone was just kind of like, yeah, you know, like, bad stuff happens to you all the time. Like, you're really good at handling things, but the only reason is because your life is just bad luck incarnate. So it's like, so you're probably going to die. So if you could just, like, update us. <laughs> I started writing a lot of stories just on Facebook and stuff. And uh, that ended up into, I had a good friend who was working at Motorcyclist Magazine at the time. And he was reading all my stories. And he's just like, I love your sense of humor. This is so much fun. Like, I have to, I'm going to show this to my editor and see what he says. Because I think you should write for us. Hold on a second. And they're, like, always looking for stories and stuff at, at all kinds of magazines. So it was, like, this lucky timing and worked out that I got to start writing for Motorcyclist Magazine, so it turned into I was writing all the time, and then I was making a little bit of money on the road, so it, that helped snowball it into a much bigger trip and bigger trip. Um, and I also realized I really, really enjoyed writing, so it was like actually uh, really fulfilling for me to keep sharing my stories and talking to people, and yeah. I mean, I was just talking about motorcycles with other people who love motorcycles, which was like everything I could ask for in life, really. <laughs> well, th- now, did the, do you th- in that case, I have to ask, did you think that the writing pushed the trip a little longer than you thought it would? I, I kind of think it probably did. Ah. Like initially, it was literally just going to be a cross-country trip, and then it was just going to be the lower 48, and then it was just going to be Alaska and the lower 48. And then I got back, and I'm like, well, I kind of got like momentum on a professional level and on a like traveling level, so I'm like, I should just keep going. Because yeah. I had never intended to go to Mexico at all. Like Growing up in Los Angeles, you only hear horror stories. Like It's, right. it's just constantly like, the border's right there, and it's like, oh, stuff's getting stolen, and this, so I never really intended to go to mexico but then i'm like well it's right there and connected by hand i don't have to get on a plane why not <laughs> uh, so so it's just kind of like that thing that just kept escalating um so now I, you used you used the fz for this whole trip then right for both trips yep. wow yep. Whole fz for full, both trips i was gonna actually be shipping the fz over to morocco in africa and then riding up into europe and then I had I had already secured a Russian visa, so I was going to be riding across Siberia and then shipping it over to Japan and sticking with the FZ the entire time. It's wow. got about seventy miles on it now. So, so how much? Well, how much work did you have to do to that thing to set it up for um, the touring? You know, really not that much. I did have to add luggage, so I got hard cases for it because I was oh. really worried about stuff getting stolen. Like that's probably kind of a side effect of growing up in Los Angeles and I'm just like everyone's always trying to steal my stuff <laughs> I don't know why they would because it's garbage most of the time but <laughs> but I was convinced that someone would totally want to steal something off of my bike so I got the big hard cases I got a 70 liter dry bag that I put on the top that holds all of my camping gear um, I got a bunch of crash protection because I'm incredibly clumsy and <laughs> it was just I knew that bike was going to go down at some point. So I got like hand guards and I got some engine cases and some axle sliders, put a windscreen on it. Cause it is a naked bike. And that's just torture over like 55 or so. It's just, Oh like, really? Yeah. It was like, you're like a bobblehead. It's just all the wind comes straight to your chest and your head. And you're just like, Oh, this is awful. <laughs> no, but the windshield made it better. Yeah, I just got the, like, I got a big touring windscreen, um, which that alone was really all I needed. Yeah. Uh, and other than that, that was, bas- oh, and I put dual sport tires on it. Um, yeah. I got the Shinko 705s had, like, where they were the only ones that fit in um, sport bike sizes. So I just shoved those huh. on. Technically, my rear tire was a little bit small, so that was kind of, took some getting used to, but right. it worked great. Wow. 
So now, but but your background, your well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. We, okay. Well, so your background up to this point was mostly on the road and track. So now, was did you find it difficult to adapt to this type of long distance stuff? Yeah. So that was kind of a. I mean, that was what almost made it the most intimidating. Is I had like no dirt experience really at all. I took a flat track school once but I was terrible at it and it was like I was like the person who was taking a flat track school and trying not to let my tires slide the entire time <laughs> I can just <laughs> so that's oval like, oh, school <laughs> yeah so it, it didn't go great to begin with but it was just like I had tons of road experience so I'm like I'll just try and stick to the roads as much as possible and like honestly you can cross the country you can even ride all the way to panama and hardly hit dirt honestly you'll hit some obviously and you'll have to get through it but it's not like the entire thing is like this gnarly jeep trail or something so yeah um, it wasn't too bad because like most of camping i did i did quite a lot of dispersed camping so it's just up forest roads so that required quite a bit of off-road but Mm -hmm. it was usually decently hard packed from all of the vehicles who have driven in in the past so it's more just dealing with like the potholes and the occasional rock and rut and stream crossings were a little bit of a learning learning curve there (laughs) but but the the dual sport tires certainly helped out a bit yeah dual sport tires did great like they were much better than my skill (laughs) (laughs) i looked much more skilled than i was going around because i'm like oh wow i actually have traction this is fine because right. initially, um, when I got the bike, it had some Michelin Sport, just like Sport Touring tires, whatever came right. stock on the bike. I don't even remember what they were. Um, and I just tried to like pull off onto one of those overlooks up in Malibu and just got onto like a little bit of gravel. And I was just like, oh, God, the tires were moving everywhere. This is terrifying. Oh, <laughs> wow. Was, so I put on the dual sport <laughs> And all of a sudden, like gravel seemed kind of okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that would that would change everything. But you now you did the first trip pretty much solo, right? Uh, I was solo to start. Um, I started out alone, and maybe maybe three months in or so, I ran into. It was actually one of these super weird. Like the universe felt like <laughs> it felt like the universe was trying to make me travel with this guy but um i like so i went cross country the first time and i stopped at circuit of the americas both times because there was a moto gp race and there was a moto america like tire test there and i ran into this guy who i met in colorado who raced motorcycles up there and like just hung out like it was fun whatever see your friends and then came back again and uh ran into him again and then i ran into him Again, in like Southern California, when I was preparing to leave for the 48, the 48 state trip, then I ran to him again in Colorado when I was freezing and I was like freezing at the side of the road, had no idea where to go and didn't, and ran to him again. And he had just lost his job as I showed up in Colorado. And I'm like, oh, well, that sounds perfect. You should come with me. And he's like, oh, okay. And I'm like, oh, well, I was kidding, but. Yeah. <laughs> So he ended up selling his truck and buying a motorcycle and coming with me. So then from there on, the rest was kind of history, and he just traveled with me everywhere. Now, uh, did, the, did, the, did the company help? Did it, did it make it easier to make the ride better or what? I think <laughs> – don't tell him this. But <laughs> I don't know if it made it easier at all whatsoever. <laughs> um, there's maybe – there are some times when, like, when I would – drop my bike or if i was going into like kind of gnarly dirt roads that were way over my head having company and some kind of backup was like okay if worst case if i screw something up i can at least try this because i know that there's someone else here with me and like so when i was traveling alone that was kind of like a lot of really sketchy dirt roads i would just shy away from because i'm like uh i don't know if i can handle that and i'm like hundreds of miles from anything and so having another person with me kind of opened my options as far as places that I was comfortable with going. Sure. Yeah. But as far as like everything else, I, I feel like it's so much easier sometimes to travel alone and just be like, oh, I want to go here today. I want to go here. I don't want to go there today. No, I, I, I totally, to I totally agree with you. Completely. Like you have more 
vacuum when you're alone. Sure, you, know? <laughs> you have more freedom to do whatever you want. You know, you're not, you know, okay, yeah. well, maybe that person doesn't feel like going up that dirt road, but maybe I do, you know. So, yeah, I, exactly. totally, I totally get it. And of course, there's so much more compromise. And yeah. Which is fine sometimes because like then there's the advantages of when you have another person you do get to share those thing the things sure. you do see with them. Yeah. So it's like you get to this amazing view or see this waterfall or whatever and just like it adds so much more to it to just be like, Oh my god, did you see that? And just like enjoy it together with someone yeah. you enjoy spending time with. So now we're talking about now can we can we say his name? Is is it okay to say his name? Uh, he's, his name's technically David, but I call him Hollywood. It, it was probably like a month before I knew his real name was David. I had called him Hollywood like my entire racing career. We all have weird <laughs> nicknames in racing. <laughs> and what was your racing name? Um, I was, well, so I was zombie for a little while. <laughs> and then well, he called me Taffy for a long time. <laughs> the Taffy came from one of my friend's dads walked in and while we were working on his bike. And his dad just constantly forgets people's names so he's like oh hey taffy and it just stuck forever <laughs> his his wasn't even a cool story his last name is hayward and he moved from montana to colorado and they mixed up hayward for haywood and it became wood and then it became hollywood it was like it wasn't even a cool story he also wears douchey sunglasses so that might have something I don't know. Everyone seems to have weird names out there. It's just you get used to it. It's like the culture of race, of club racing. It's just a bunch of grown children. All right. What kind of bike did he ride on the trip? Uh, so he was on an FZ1 is what he picked up. Um, so kind of like naked sport bike concept sure. still. It's just like we both came from road racing, so it's just like sport bikes made sense i mean the fz07 is kind of a standard slash sport bike but um so he, his bike is completely inappropriate for adventure but <laughs> he doesn't even <laughs> run cars, but he grew up on a ranch so for him it's like oh yeah let's just go into the dirt that's what we do doesn't matter what you're in right. um, so but anyway so now with regard to the trip now uh, the u.s trip did you have a planned route or was there do you have specific destinations in mind or was it just, you know, point the front wheel and go? Yeah. So I started out with a plan for sure. <laughs> like before I left LA, I was very particular on, okay, I'm going to go to Death Valley. Then I'm going to go to Las Vegas and I'm going to go to Zion. And like, I had like a campground plan for every night or well, I had like a national park plan for every night figuring I'd just camp there. And then by like day two or three, it just all went to shit. Like every campground <laughs> I went to, full. <laughs> it's like every route that I thought I was gonna go on was just it. It ended up being complete improv from there, which actually ended up being pretty easy. By after a little while, you just start to once you figure out how to find a campground, it at night it like took the stress out of it and there's so much camping especially in the western united states that you can just oh yeah my god oh yeah, oh, yeah. You anywhere and just be like oh, i'll just pitch my tent right here because there's so much national forest out here and sure. you can really camp in any national forest which i actually didn't even know until i was on this trip <laughs> i had never done the dispersed camping thing and right. um ended up just going to like a ranger station and they're like yeah you can camp here 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 free it's free like that road you could do on any motorcycle, no problem. So it, um, that just kind of became my mo. Is I just go vaguely in that direction, be like, okay, I want to go to this state, maybe hit this park, and figure out the rest from there. Were there any so, places that stick out in your mind more than others? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think Zion in southern Utah is still probably one of my favorite places in the entire world. Love honestly. Utah. Utah is awesome. It's so beautiful. Oh, like yeah. it's, it's kind of a weird state if you like ever go into a bar in Utah. <laughs> oh, really? How so? Oh, do tell. Like, <laughs> do tell. <laughs> There's just oh, we ended up in this tiny little town in I don't even know where we were. It was somewhere in central Utah, and we walked into this bar. Or it wasn't even a bar; it was a pizza place. And Hollywood kept trying to order beers, and they just and the waitresses were like no, we, we're not old enough to serve you a beer and we can't do that in Utah. Like, that's just, you can't get beers and food here at the same time. And they're like, well, you don't have any waitresses like over 16? And, like, <laughs> and it was just 
this weird thing where we're like, no, because we get married by the time we're 18. Like, why would we be working once we're married? <laughs> I'm like, uh, I wow. don't know. Okay. <laughs> because, because it was like 2016. <laughs> like, I didn't know people still did that. Wow. Okay. Was, you know, you get off the beaten path in the United States and you can find, like, you can step back in time just decades. <laughs> oh, my God. Did out. you make it into Moab? I stopped in Moab to camp and it ended up being about a week before I think it was Memorial Day. All right. And I had no idea because I had no concept of time. And um, I ended up camping in like a dirt parking lot at the side of the road because I couldn't find anywhere to camp at all. And it was like really? 200 Oh, wow. First. Yeah, it was so packed. It was just like overflowing with people everywhere. And I'm sure if I was a really good dirt rider, I could have gotten way off the beaten path and found a campground somewhere. Uh, but I'm I was very still surprised. traveling alone and I was green at that point. So it was pretty tough. I'm actually going to Moab in a week, though. Too. Oh, really? Oh, I hate you. Yeah. <laughs> it was like I've been waiting all summer to go to Moab since I've been doing like this learn to ride dirt thing all, right. all summer in place of the travel in place of going to Russia. So I've been like, I want to go to Moab. Like, I got to do this. And I'm like looking at the forecast. I'm like, it's like 115 and I don't really want to go to Moab right now. <laughs> wow. I'll tell you I'll what, after, after we're done with the podcast, I'm going to hook you up with somebody that I know out there that oh, actually teaches dirt riding yeah so i'll hook you up but uh, no just i tell you what if you're gonna if you're gonna camp in moab there are so many places to camp there oh my god yeah yeah i'm, I'm gonna do it right this time so i am happy to take any tips on that place because i was like no i i missed everything the first time i was there and i hear nothing but great things and it's so beautiful that i just oh my god can't yes, wait to go back absolutely so, so now, now at one point during your trip you you found yourself in the Northeast, and by all accounts, yes. you you didn't like it. I don't, I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. So why don't you tell us about that? The, the land of tolls. We know that, right? Yes. <laughs> oh, man. I wanted to like it so bad. And, like, there were a lot of things that were amazing. Like, I got to New England just in time for fall, which yeah. was yeah. So spectacular, especially coming from LA. Like, we don't really have fall. We either have like green trees or dead trees. Like, there's really not a whole lot in between. <laughs> and black <laughs> so, trees. Like, and I, black trees because they're on fire, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Lots of black trees. Lots of black trees. But um, so the first time I ever actually saw a tree with like bright yellow leaves, I'm like, oh, wow, cool. What kind of tree is that? And Hollywood just looked at me. It's like, it's fall he's like it's just an <laughs> it's like it's a tree and it's nothing special wow. um so but i got every single road i hit i swear was a toll road and like there were so few national forests which that made it really tough because i was camping everywhere and like the cities are so expensive like i oh, wanted to camp and stay in new york for like one day and i had a friend in new york who was just like hey yeah let's go tour here we got to check this out and this out and I'm like, oh, well, I don't really have a place to stay. He's like, oh, sorry, I don't really have room for you. So I'm like, well, like it's $250 a night for a hotel room, so I have to just kind of skip this whole city. <laughs> wow, <laughs> yeah. It's kind was, of, yeah. of being a traveler when you're on a tight budget is you'll go through some of these places and you kind of want to see more of them, but you can't really afford to, so you just kind of pass them by. Right. So it almost dictates your trip a bit. Sure. Um, just budget stuff, you know, like it's so different than like when you fly in on vacation, you're going to be there for like three, four five days and you can just be like, oh, well, I got a job when I go home. So I'll just remake whatever money I spend. No big deal. Right. But when you're past traveler, it's kind of like every single purchase is kind of like uh, it's fifteen dollars for that burger. <laughs> yeah. So where in, where so in the northeast did you was, hit? Did you hit all of the northeast states? Um. So I hit I hit all of them. Uh, I and I started out following like Lake Erie, went up through upstate New York, which was beautiful but super dreary when I was there. It was like uh, would have been mid October, so yeah. it was kind of yeah. You're, you're, nice. you're, you're coming into yeah. the, the the end. <laughs> My timing wasn't great. I got back from Alaska and like beginning of september and it was kind of like oh shit i haven't hit maine yet and i want to hit all the states so we better start booking it like now <laughs> um so i was going through upstate new york that was pretty but it was dreary and cold and it was hard to so hard to find camping um and 
people weren't very nice to me. Like everyone I met in New York was pretty, pretty stressed out or something. Suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then I was stressed out because there was traffic. Like I think I sat on the bridge from like Delaware to Maryland or something for literally just like two hours of bumper to bumper. And I'm like, at least in California, I can lane split. <laughs> yeah, no, there's um, none of that up here. No. Yeah, that's that was actually really disappointing when I left California. Period was like I got to Arizona and I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna zip up to the front of the in front of the line. I'm like, oh wait, no, I'm not supposed to do that here. Oh, this is illegal. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Which wasn't as big a deal until I was on the East Coast and there was so much traffic everywhere that I'm like, oh wow, wow people really just sit in this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this welcome is... to my world. <laughs> yeah, that's what you guys do. <laughs> we have no choice. Oh my god, I ride a big V twin and this it's like the Easy Bake Oven. So when yeah. I ride on the highways around here, if it's there's traffic, I either pull yeah. over to the shoulder and I sit there or I just I deal with it. That's all you yeah, can you do. Yeah. I, I actually even in living in Los Angeles, traffic gets so bad. Like, like even lane splitting is stre- so stressful sometimes because you're just sitting there and you've got just thousands and thousands of people. So, I mean, it's I don't know. <laughs> Trade off. Right. So now did, did you hit all the corners of the lower 48? Oh, um. So, I guess not technically. I mean, I did hit Key West. I wore my Key West. I wore my Key West hat for you. See oh, excellent! <laughs> I actually, I loved, I loved Key West so much. Oh that God. was such a. I don't know if it was just because I was so thrilled to be there because it was like the initial goal of the first time I ever rode cross country and all of that. I was like, I made it, made it to Key West. But God, I love Florida for some reason. <laughs> no, the vibe down in Key West is just absolutely awesome. Yeah. Oh, I. I love Cuban food, so... <laughs> well, there you go. Awesome. There you go. Yeah. Oh, it was a lot of fun. And especially now, I didn't when I started the trip, but now I'm a scuba diver, so, like, the entire ocean over there, just, like, 85-degree ocean is one of the greatest things in the world. <laughs> yeah. Been to the corner in California. I actually had to look up where it was, because I'm like, I bet I've been there, and it was, like, San Seed or something. But... I didn't technically hit the corners in Maine or Washington. So I went to both states, but I didn't. <sighs> Do over. So yeah. <laughs> like, like I went to Alaska, but I totally missed Blaine, Washington. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's one of those. I feel like I need to go back now. I didn't get to spend too much time in Maine either, which was actually really a shame because I really enjoyed Maine. But it was, um, I say it was like mid to late October. So I went over to like Bar Harbor and every single restaurant had just shut for the season. And it's like, I didn't realize that there are places that are seasonally, like exist seasonally. Like I spent a week or so in Cape Cod and it was completely shut down other than like one or two like local restaurants. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, winter. <laughs> That's a thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't get that winter yep. thing in California. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so many things I didn't realize. Even when I left on my trip, it was like, Mid, it was mid-May when I started heading north towards Oregon and Washington, and I got to like Northern California, and I got up to um, Crater Lake in Oregon, and it was snowing in the middle of May. And I'm like, it's normally like 108 degrees where I grew up right now. <laughs> like, what is going on? Why is there snow? I thought that was just like December and January, and then we were over it. Wow. And then I moved to Montana after the trip, and I found out that a lot of places have snow for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you got a little bit of an education then, didn't you? Yeah, it was a little bit of a, a, little bit of a culture shock there, or weather shock, or <laughs> life wow. shock. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> So now during your trip, you did, did you get any, you did hit some tracks along the way. Did you get any laps in? I wish, I so wish I had, but on, I didn't have my leathers since I was riding in like waterproof gear and stuff. Right. I did get to do two laps at this tiny little track, um, in, it's called Bandamere in Colorado. It's like not too far from Denver. And I did get to do like one guy, let me borrow his bike for just like two laps around this tiny little go-kart track. Cause we oh. do that a lot. We'll take the little mini bikes, like mm-hmm. we'll take like a little bike put scooter tires on it and take it around the cart the go-kart tracks in southern california we do it a lot they do it in colorado they probably do it in quite a lot of states but uh, it's it's great training for the big bike racing but it's also just ridiculously fun to have like you have like 
40-year-old men on little kids' dirt bikes, like, banging arms and going through the go-kart. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's so much fun. Wow. So that was the one track I did get to ride. Oh, and then at the very, very end, um, I went back to my home track. So the re- track I started racing on was Chuck Walla Valley Raceway in kind of near Palm Springs in SoCal. And uh, I got back just in time. They have had, like, a big new new year's party there so we i got to take my bike out and do like a couple laps on the fz on that track which was really awkward with dual sport tires but whatever it was awesome at the same time (laughs) wow nice i wish i had ridden more tracks but i tried to stop at them every time i saw one just just to enjoy their existence (laughs) cool now so you did mostly camping on the u.s trip right yeah it was in the united states it was like 90 percent camping maybe 95 there was a brief period when i was in like the southeast um i was there kind of it was fire season and they had shut down all of it was they had a big fire ban so i stopped camping there for a little bit because it was like december and really really fucking cold (laughs) but but other than that it was camping the whole way just saved money and and it was more fun i like yeah oh yeah out into the woods and you meet so many people when you go camping (laughs) well prior to this trip have you camped before a little bit like i kind of like i grew up and camping was like how we went on vacations we didn't really have a lot of money so we just if when it was time to go on a vacation we'd go like 30 miles to castake lake or piru or whatever and we'd just camp out for a weekend and that was like what i grew up associating with vacation um so that's probably why it just made sense. Like, oh, of course, I'm going to get to go camping every day. This is going to be great. And then by, like, month eight, you're like, oh, I'm camping every day. <laughs> I've wow. kind of given up showers. I've given up. Well, speaking, <laughs> of, sh- yes. speaking of showers, I mean, some, many camp- many campgrounds do have showers, but many campgrounds don't. A lot of campgrounds do. And that was that was actually a nice, refreshing thing when I first started traveling was I'm like, oh, okay, I can still shower every night and whatever. But then, like, I was waking up and it would be, like, 28 degrees and there's frost on my bike. And I'm like, I'm not touching that fucking shower right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not going to sleep wet and I'm not waking up wet because I do not have a toy hauler with a warm heater. And um, so that was always kind of fun. But but then when I started doing dispersed camping and the free camping all the time, like just going into the national forest, you don't have anything. Like you don't even have tables or anything. So you're, I mean, you literally are digging a hole to go to the bathroom. Uh, so it, wow, it started to become a much more rugged trip by maybe I don't know two months into it or so. Just like I said, partially for budget necessity of if I save twenty dollars a night on wild camping because most campgrounds are around twenty dollars there was one place going up the coast that i paid 45 dollars to camp on the california coast and i was just like oh my god <laughs> like 45 dollars i could have hopped in a hotel room or something yeah wow it got so expensive to keep going to real campgrounds that i just started doing the national forest thing entirely and then you've given up. I think you've given up bathrooms. You've given up showers, and you've just you're literally bathing in lakes. I don't know how many glacier lakes I bathed in on the way to Alaska, <laughs> just because that was all that I really had to to use. And it was that, that's really a fun. little ch- that's a little chilly, <laughs> just a little yeah, chilly, was, right? They were very quick quick baths. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you do about food? <laughs> oh, food. Well, so I did a lot of honestly i usually did restaurants but like there was a lot of top ramen there was yeah. a lot of canned <laughs> beans <laughs> a lot of the occasional jerky every now and again i do one of those um like the dehydrated meals like those backpackers pantry uh or whatever with the mountain house meals but those are so expensive that it was pretty that was like a rare treat to be like oh we're having beef stroganoff tonight wow <laughs> but uh, it was a lot of top ramen or like I'd get those nor meals, the, like the nor noodles where it's like just add water for like instant rice. Instant right. Yeah. Alfredo. There was nothing I was more excited about when I came back and started saving up money again as having my own kitchen. I mean, like I'm going to cook fucking jambalaya. <laughs> like I'm going to, like I'm going to roast a whole turkey today. Fuck it. Wow. That's <laughs> it funny. So exciting to cook. 
Which is funny because I was like super bachelor before I left. Like I would literally have just like an avocado and call it dinner. And then as soon as I got back, I'm like, I love cooking. This is great. Like that's all I want to do. Wow, that's funny. <laughs> so it, was, it made me appreciate it a lot. <laughs> the things you <laughs> so, don't realize you don't have. And- of course, yeah. So now in the first book, you chronicled mostly your trip through the U.S. And well, yeah. before I go any further than that, but you did make it up to Alaska. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, how, how was that ride? I mean, I imagine there's a lot oh, more gravel roads up there. It's, oh God, it's so spectacular. Like, I don't even know how to start on Alaska. Like, so I was really, really intimidated to go up there. Um, I didn't want to do the ride alone because I had heard so many harrowing stories, especially from like, I had some friends who had done it on a GS and stuff. And they're like, oh yeah, it's super gnarly. Like you'll be going along and it'll just be huge potholes or the road will just disappear and da da da. So I was super, super intimidated by going to Alaska. And then, you know, all the stories of, like, the gas being so sparse. And I'm like, oh, I only have a 3.7-gallon tank on the FZ. It maybe gets... I mean, if I'm really conservative, I can get 170 miles out of a tank if I'm really conservative. Usually it's closer to, like, 120, 130 because it's a sport bike and I have problems. But, <laughs> <laughs> but so I got, like, this little two-liter two tank uh, gas t- can and put that on the bike thinking that would get me there and it'd be fine. Right. So I decided to take, I started on the West end and took the Cassie R up, which is supposed to be a bit more remote. Um, and it ended up being, there's like a, a gas station every like 80 miles. Like there was no problem at all whatsoever. <laughs> I don't, I think maybe there was a hundred mile stretch at worst with no gas tank, gas station. And there was one place where it was like $8 a gallon. So that kind of sucked. But wow. Fuel was no problem. The roads were actually pretty well paved. There was a ton of road construction that would be like maybe there was like one 30 mile stretch of pretty loose dirt for road construction. Right. But that was, that was it. Like that was the most harrowing thing that I encountered was graded dirt for road oh. construction. So uh, how far, well, like, how far in Alaska did you go? I only got to go as far as um, Skagway, so I didn't get to go all the way up to Prudhoe Bay, so maybe that's where it gets really super crazy, but the Canada portion was nothing. There was, like, nothing there. It was so... It was so easy that I was almost, like, disappointed. <laughs> I was like, everyone made this out the most harrowing trip of all time. And it's really just, like, there's sometimes road construction that's kind of annoying. <laughs> and that was about it. Oh, wow. But it, Yeah, but it was so beautiful up there. It was well worth it. I don't know. I mean, I met so many people up in Alaska who were going... They were up there on Harley's towing trailers. And I'm like, if you can literally tow a trailer on your motorcycle and be fine going through these roads like i think literally any motorcycle can do this pretty, pretty yeah easily. you would think you would think though yeah i mean for the most part i mean obviously it's somewhat rider skill dependent there but it's <laughs> still it's still just one of those things where it's like it's not like you're doing single track jumping rocks and logs and right it's it's just they're well-maintained roads that trucks drive on all the time right. but, how, how but was the was, weather what was the weather to you was it that kind of uh, i left in august so the very first day of august is when i crossed the canadian border and then it was like the first day of september when i crossed back into the u.s or back into montana um so it it was an early kind of an early winter that year it was getting pretty cold pretty fast like the leaves were already changing in mid-august when we were up there mm-hmm. um so it was pretty rainy like the entire time which was i guess kind of nice because it kept the mosquitoes down because i like mosquitoes really 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 love me so i really <laughs> appreciate that but other than that it was like it was probably like mid 50s and rainy the oh, entirety of it yeah, like it wasn't like I'm riding through ice and sleet and snow or right. something, but but it wasn't like nice and sunny either. Yeah, but it was it? I was up there for like those 22 hour days, so that was kind of cool. Like you yeah. get like two hours, and it'd be one in the morning, and you don't even realize it, and you're like wide awake because the sun's out, and your body just yeah. doesn't understand. It kind of kind of disturbs your sleep patterns a little bit. Yeah, it threw me off a lot. It was pretty interesting because then like, well especially sleeping in a tent every night like you're going to bed at with the sun still up and like you're trying to sleep in your tent when you have the sun still coming through your thin little 
nylon sheet. <laughs> it's like four in the morning, the sun comes back up and you're like, I'm not ready. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I get it. So now you're, you're done with it. You're done with Alaska and the U.S. And now your second book has you going into Mexico and a little further south. Tell, tell, tell us about the contrast between the two. There was a lot more trash in Mexico. <laughs> a lot more trash. <laughs> no, I mean, Mexico is a pretty, pretty big, like, kind of culture shock, like, huge learning curve just going down there and kind of getting used to how different it really was from the States because technically Mexico is still, like, a third world country and yeah you have mexico city or you have cabo or you have cancun that are pretty modern and seem pretty nice and that's what most people know but when you're going down there and going through rural mexico you're literally going through mud huts and like just pretty primitive kind of places so it was kind of an interesting concept of just going down there and i, I think i got I got sick a couple times i actually managed to pick up cholera when i was in southern mexico that oh was god cool. Yeah, it was like all these things where it, it was. I was stupid enough to think I could brush my teeth with the water. <laughs> so it, it was kind of like this weird learning experience of even going camping. Um, so when I was going down to Baja, I camped everywhere on the Baja. Like you could just hop off on any beach and go camping on this beautiful, nice beach. It's great. But then when I went into the mainland of Mexico, that kind of went out of the window. Like, we'd talk to locals and be like, hey, like, where's good camping? Like, where would you recommend? Where could we go that's a little more off the beaten path? And they're like, we don't do that here. <laughs> it's like, no, don't don't camp. Like, you're going to end up in, like, a random marijuana field on accident or something. Wow. <laughs> it was one of those things. It's like, the Baja is so isolated that, and there's only, like, really one or two roads through the entire thing. So it's pretty safe in the Baja really right but the main Mexico has just thousands and thousands of roads like I didn't even realize how big Mexico was until it was like 3,000 miles and we were still go in Mexico and I'm like oh wow this is actually a pretty big country wow cool um so so it was a lot more though we did a lot more hotels there which was fine because it was like 15 20 dollars a night for a hotel and some of those hotels were so rugged, you may as well have been camping. Um, <laughs> and then there were like little things like um, I didn't realize hot water was a thing that like they don't have hot water in most of their showers because it's so hot that they're just like, oh, yeah, natural heating. No need. <laughs> oh, and like just little things like that that I didn't realize. But um, and I was pretty concerned with the safety because that was always what I was bombarded with being up here is, oh, my God, cartels. Oh, my God, like you're going to get robbed or whatever. Um, but it was kind of cool at every hotel we went to, they always were really adamant about like protecting our bikes and stuff. Like we'd ride up and they'd be like, Oh, you can park like in the lobby or you can park in the room or we have security. Like they always were right. really conscious of protecting tourists, uh, cause it doesn't help them if you get robbed either. So it was yeah. like, yeah, but like the people were super open and super friendly. So I didn't really expect. I didn't know what to expect, especially with the language barrier, because I didn't really speak any Spanish. Right. When we went down there, I mean, I knew a few swear words I learned in high school, but that was about <laughs> it. <laughs> I don't think those would have made me too many friends. <laughs> um, but so it was even, but even though we had that language barrier, like people were just so curious and interested, especially when we were in rural Mexico. Like there are parts down there where they've never seen a real white person outside of their TV. Really. So, like, especially in, like, rural, like, Michoacan and Guerrero, you'd be way off in the beaten path, literally surrounded by people who are living under, like, tarps and just, like, tarps on a tree. And that's, they're literally a hammock could t attached wow. to a tree. And wow. they'd see you and they'd be so curious and they'd just want to talk to you and they'd want to help you and feed you and learn more about you. And it was just, even though we didn't speak, like the same language at all people would just like be so ready to just talk and help out and it was right. actually a really cool experience well wow. wow. how well let me tell me tell me this how far south did you get to go um i only got to go as far as the very end of the road in panama so you get to panama city and then there's like 200 kilometers or so of just total no man's land like jungle past panama city and then it gets to the kind of like 
technically there should be a land bridge between Panama and Colombia to get right. into South America, but it's all like swampland. Right, that's the Darien Gap. Yeah, the Darien Gap, and it's just you can't really get through there. Some people have taken bikes through there, but it's really a lot of like, oh yeah, I put it in a canoe and pushed it, and <laughs> like all kinds of. <laughs> don't really ride through it per se. <laughs> so you got to um, the end of the road, and that was it. Very end of the road, and then I was sitting there looking at my bank account, and I'm like, technically, I could afford to ship my bike over to South America, but it would be like my last couple thousand dollars kind of thing. And wow. I didn't do that just because I wanted to be able to experience it and enjoy it a little more. Right. So it was like, when, I mean, I had already only really planned to go cross country and back when I started the trip, so by the time it was like almost like a year and a half in or something and all of a sudden I was like 70,000 miles more than I planned to ride. I was like, okay, budget's getting a little tight. I wasn't really ready for this. Wow. So tell us about the border crossings. I hear all kinds of horror stories about the southern border crossings going through the Central America. How was that for you guys? Um. So they really, honestly, they're not that bad other than there's no air conditioning and it's like a million degrees and so humid which was probably the most harrowing part of the whole border honestly i mean it was kind of a pain in the ass because they also they don't have copy machines in any of their border offices so you're constantly like oh how many copies do i need to get of this and you're running around constantly trying to just confuse and figure trying to figure out what paperwork you need but other than that it's just a lot of time I think the longest border crossing I had was just like five hours of sitting and sweating. I don't even five know how it's possible hours? to sweat that much. Five, five. hours. Wow. <laughs> of just sitting there waiting. Like, because you're waiting in line, and then sometimes, like, a tourist boss will come in, and now you're sitting behind, like, 30 backpackers, and it's it was just exhausting. Wow. Um, but, but other than that, it really wasn't bad at all. Um, one second. Sure. Did that work? <laughs> Are you on the phone? <laughs> Sorry, my partner just got back. Uh, and your mom. Uh, anyways, um, the, the biggest horror story really of the borders down there, though, that you run into the most. So for me, I think one of the things that was probably the coolest down there, one of the more interesting things for me was getting to see... Um, rainforest for the first time oh cool (laughs) nice like it's kind of lame but like after always hearing about it as a kid like even getting to see a monkey for the first time getting to see a sloth it took me forever to find monkeys for the record like i went to costa rica and they told me oh yeah like they're everywhere like you always have you have howlers and you have the capuchins and spider monkeys all over the place and i was always like i went to every place that they said you would for sure see a monkey and searched for weeks and never had any luck, just like I never had luck finding mooses um, <laughs> all the way to Alaska and back. But it was one of the core things for me is just seeing the wildlife like in their real habitat. Even I started scuba diving when I was in Belize. I learned to do that when I was there just because it was like, what else do you do in Belize? Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> like, that's like the whole point of going down to the Caribbean or something. But just getting to see, again, like, the fish in their natural habitat just kind of existing, like, away from an aquarium or a zoo or any of that. It was right. just, it was neat to see, like, those animals really <laughs> being a thing. Like, <laughs> I don't, it sounds silly, but it's it's just you don't really realize how, like, what, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Just, like, seeing the world as it really is existing just in its normal day-to-day. Oh, it's, a, it's a totally new experience for you. That's why you, do, you know, you, that's why we do these trips. So, yeah. So, so now, during this whole time through Mexico and, and, and of course, through the U.S. and into Alaska, of course, how did, how did the bike perform? Any difficulties? Um, oh, it was it was great. Like, you can't kill that that bike for anything. Like, those Yamahas are so fucking bulletproof, I guess. Because <laughs> I did not do a good job of maintaining the bike, really. Honestly, I should have done better. It was kind of a pain in the ass since I didn't have a didn't have a center stand like to do chain maintenance and stuff i had to sit in a like parking lot and push the bike and spray the chain and push the bike spray the chain and stuff like that so like it wasn't as well maintained as it probably should have been it probably got a 
oil change every 10,000 miles or something, which wow. is kind of embarrassing when I came from racing and it used to be like, oh yeah, every other weekend, like every 300 miles, I've got an oil change and the chain's being cleaned and maintained. <laughs> so somehow it managed to take all of that and it never let me down even once. Um, like if the dirt roads weren't really all that bad, they were mostly hard packed and potholy. I did take a pretty big ding to my rim when I was in Honduras. They have no road maintenance there at all whatsoever. Right. Um, it's super interesting. As soon as you cross into a new country, you immediately discover what their infrastructure priorities are. Because like the road will either be total hell or it'll be this smooth, perfect pavement, and you're and it's just dramatically different from one country to the next. Wow. So I I hit a pothole that was probably a good six inches or so deep and just completely warped my rim but somehow it still takes tires and they still mount no problem so i'm not touching it <laughs> wow did you have the need to access a yamaha dealership or service at all along the way i mean when i was in the states i was using yamaha dealers because yamaha ended up supporting me a good bit um well not a lot they were just covering my maintenance so they were so excited that i was taking out an fz07 back when the fz07 had just come out it was like 2016 and the FC came out in 2015 so they were super stoked about it and they're like yeah we'll help you out with maintenance while you're on the road so if you need anything like hit up a hit us up and we'll take you to a Yamaha dealer and they'll like have you covered right. which ended up being more trouble than it was worth honestly like it I could have done better work than a lot of those dealers could at the side of the road with hand tools but once I got to Mexico, I didn't have any of that support, and it was 100% just using local shops, and which a lot of those shops uh, couldn't really work on bikes that big. Like, they didn't have the tools for it. Like, when I got a tire change, I had to make sure I had all of the tools on me just because they didn't have even just a socket big enough to take off a rear or the rear wheel on a FZ07, or even on his FZ1, they didn't have any tools that could take off the front tire. So there was, like, kind of that thing was a little bit interesting. It was making sure, you, like, um, had to do the chain on his FZ1 while we were down in down in Panama. and um, Or not Panama, I was back up in Mexico. And it turns out that none of the shops had a chain tool that was big enough to work on a full-size motorcycle chain. They were all used to, like, little scooter chains and stuff like wow. that because that's what they were there. Uh, so we ended up having to go to a tortilleria, like, one of the tortilla shops because apparently they have chains for the tortilla presses, and they have to regularly service the chains on their tortilla presses. So it was – they were the only people who actually had a chain tool. Oh, that's I now crazy. travel with the chain tool time i didn't but it was like one of those weird little things like oh okay like we went to a motorcycle shop and like oh yeah we don't have that like over there though <laughs> it's like wait what <laughs> wow but they're like so excited too like with tor the guys were in a tortilla shop were just like so in love with seeing these bikes because they get just really excited by like the big motorcycles and they all love like rate motorcycle racing and stuff down there so they see a flashy yellow sport bike and they're like, Oh, well, Yamaha. <laughs> wow. It was, it was pretty cool. Um, but other than that, it was just, there's a lot of like small shops every now and again for basic maintenance, but the bikes were pretty reliable. So they didn't really need too much. Okay. Now that you've done the U S and, uh, Mexico again, any plan? We know you said you're going to be going over to Europe and probably into Russia. Uh, and all that in, in Africa. Are you? Do you have any plans to redo the U.S. trip? Um, I've thought about doing a little bit more around here. I'm kind of like more fixated on going over there just because it's something I've never done. So sure. it's kind of more like it's new and exciting or whatever. Right. But I mean, there's so much in the United States that I didn't get to see, especially just kind of passing through the first time. I didn't get to hike as many places as I wanted to hike, um, and all of that. So there's I want to do it eventually. It's just kind of like a little bit more on the back burner. But then again, at the same time, like, so this summer, because all of the, my travel plans obviously tanked, we went and got another dirt bike and we took out two dirt bikes so we could go like kind of explore more of the back country of the United States of what I didn't get to see since while I was doing a lot of off-road on the FZ, it wasn't 
like really technical off road or anything. It was just basic forest service roads. Right. So I wanted to be able to explore like way deep in the backcountry. Um, so it's actually been really cool to get to see more of. I said like going to Moab next week to finally actually get to experience Moab and been spent a lot of time like going through the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. Went up to Montana and found a dinosaur bone. That was really cool. Like getting to like <laughs> like there's just all of these things like hidden gems in the United States that I didn't really get to find. So it's fun to get to redo that a little bit on the dirt bike and just like see all those things I missed. I'd like I re- would actually like to go back to the East Coast and explore more of the Northeast and hopefully have a better impression of it this second time. <laughs> I've heard there's some actual decent riding up there, like as far as some cool mountains and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. But, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you get up into the Adirondacks, and, of course, you get into the White Mountains. Uh, I Just the whole Appalachian uh, range, just beautiful roads in the whole area. Yeah. I think, I think the Blue Ridge Parkway is still probably my favorite road, period, that I've ever ridden. Like, it's still right up there. <laughs> or it probably is still top, honestly. It's pretty hard to beat the Blue Ridge Parkway. Oh yeah. Um, now, as, tell us about your Europe trip. When things are, when you're able to, you're gonna you're gonna ship your bike over to Morocco. You said, and then make your way through uh, Europe and into Russia. That's gonna be a never-ending trip, huh? Yeah, it's. I can't wait. <laughs> like I can't wait so much. It's it's some, there's something about Siberia that I've always been weirdly fascinated by, and so the concept of getting to ride my motorcycle through it is just like one of those weird childhood dreams that I had and didn't realize <laughs> until wow, I was like wow. looking at it. So it's just I don't know. I can't I can't wait to finally actually do it. It's it was like a lot of years in the making, so obviously it was pretty disappointing when everything kind of tanked this year, <laughs> but. So how can people learn more about you, your travels, and your books? Okay. Well, so I've got a couple books out, obviously, as you mentioned. I got those on Audible. They're on Amazon, Barnes Noble, most anywhere you're going to buy books. Um, or I just started writing uh, for Revzilla here and there. Uh, my Some of my stories are still on motorcyclists, all of my original stories that I had written there. Although the books are much better, I promise. <laughs> um, and other than that, it's just mostly I just update Facebook and Instagram. Everything's just under my name. Didn't want to get too creative. Like <laughs> it competing. But uh, just started playing with the YouTube thing, but I'm still not very good at that. I really admire the people who do YouTube full time because editing video is hard. <laughs> so, yeah, it's very, very time consuming. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you said podcast very time consuming. Oh yeah, video is hard. I can only imagine. So, any last comments or suggestions or advice to would-be motorcycle travelers? I think if I were to give someone advice on like if they wanted to get out there, it comes down to one of those: just you have to commit to it and stop thinking "I'd love to," but because I don't know how many times I've heard "I'd love to," but and there's always an excuse and there's always a reason you can't quite do it and it'll get put off forever if you keep coming up with those little reasons um so just what honestly whatever you have and however prepared you are or aren't you'll probably be fine (laughs) just go out and do it and you won't regret it i learned so much about myself on the road and just even just on how capable i was and how capable i had no idea i was and it was just this amazing enlightening experience just being like oh i can survive that like oh this isn't the end of the world like okay things go wrong sometimes and it's not that big a deal like you'll have this they call it trail magic when you're hiking where it's just this weird phenomenon that every time things go wrong somehow the right person will happen upon you at the right time or you'll just figure it out and the right it'll all work out and it just is that constant thing of if you're really worried about going out and traveling because of this unknown and that unknown, it's going to be fine. <laughs> just Excellent. go out and do it. Excellent <laughs> advice. Well, Tiffany, I want to thank you very much for joining me here on the podcast. Uh, I wish you a lot of luck and uh, plenty of safety and good, and good times on your travels. And I must have come in and keep in touch so we know what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. All right. All right. Stick around. I want to talk to you after we're done. Uh, but thank you very much for being on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining Tiffany and I here on the podcast where we talked about her books and her travels. To learn more about Tiffany, you can go check out her print and audio books that are available now on Amazon and Audible and also on her Instagram and Facebook page. So I'll put links in the show notes and you can check those out. Don't forget to check out our fellow podcasters, YouTubers, bloggers, and vloggers whose links you will find on our links page. All of these media outlets and many more out there do great things to promote and encourage our sport and this passion. This has been the Motorcycle Man Podcast, and I am Ted, your host. Thank you for listening, and remember, we say stupid crap so you don't have to. Enjoy your ride, kids. <laughs>